to God in prayer. Father, I love the lyrics on that song. It just reminds us what you've placed us on this world to do, to know you and to make you known. We thank you for the power of the gospel that we've experienced personally. And we just thank you for the privilege of just opening your word. And we pray that as your word is open, not only that it would speak, but that your word would move in our hearts and through us to reach the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, team. Uh, They'll be back in a little while, but great to be back with you. Uh, this morning, I, I feel like I've kind of done a mad dash a- across the world a few weeks ago when we did that message entitled, uh, you know, on the Sabbath about rest. I said that that message was for me. I've pretty much been to a lot of different places and I also managed to stop off in uh, the United Kingdom where I landed in London and then drove up to and drove up to Wales and was able to see my family. I don't think I've seen my extended family for, what, five years or more. And uh, that, was, uh, that was really great. But it, it does feel as though I've been running. And one of the privileges of, of doing that is I did speak in my home church. That's it. Um, it it's a little bit smaller than this one. Um, and what was really significant about that was uh, at the end of the service, uh, the elders called me to the front and they prayed for me. And, and in that moment, it was honestly a little bit of deja vu because it really was those elders who some 34 years earlier called me to one side and said, Craig, God has placed a call on your life and we want to pray for you that you would just embrace that wherever it takes you. And what was really cool was as they were praying for me on that Sunday morning, they said never in the world would we have imagined that it would lead, that God would lead a little boy from Wales all the way to the States. But they said, we thank you for that call, Father, and we pray that you would continue to anoint him for the race that you called him to run. Now, when we were doing this series in Acts, we called it Run Church Run, and a number of people were were kind of wondering, why on earth did you call a study through the book of Acts Run Church Run? And and today, you're going to catch a glimpse of why we did it. The truth is that every person who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is called a follower of Jesus, a Christ follower. And we follow a God who is not just working in the world, he is running through this world. And the church's job is to keep up with what God is doing. And that basically means that each and every one of us in this place, if we have made that decision to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that basically means that we are followers. That means that we have a call that God has called us to pursue. No call, no two calls are the same. Every call is unique. Yes, when we marry, those calls may kind of merge. Two paths may become one. Two lives may become one. But the reality is we still have a call that is unique to us. And today as we look at Acts chapter 8, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, I want to encourage you to run not just the race, to run your 
race. Run it. Run it with passion. Run it with commitment. Run it with dedication. But run your race. Have a look at the text with me, Acts chapter 8. I'm beginning to read from verse 26. If you took a Bible from the auditorium, that's page 1099. I'm going to read this today because I want you to engage in the story, okay? If you haven't got a Bible in front of you, just listen to it and try and picture what's going on here. Acts chapter 8 from verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now stop there. Some of you may be saying, Philip, who's Philip? Okay, last week, Pastor Steve left us in Acts chapter 2, reminding us that the gospel is a gospel for everyone, old and young, male and female, Jew and Gentile, everyone. That's Acts 2. And now, in Acts chapter 8, we've got Philip. How did Philip get on the scene? Well, let's just trace the tale so far, the progress. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has descended, the church has grown exponentially. Now what? Well, they live in Jerusalem, not because it was home. Remember, Jerusalem was unfamiliar. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. But it's where God placed them. All mission is local. And so they just start to live. And part of living there meant that you would go to the temple. So Peter and John, Acts chapter 3, are on the way to the temple. They meet a lame man. They heal him. Causes some controversy. I think that's the way you say it. Um, And uh, led to them in Acts chapter 4 being hauled before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, where they were commanded not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter, full of boldness, basically said, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to God. They kind of beat them, let them go on their way. But they started a work, a work of purging, a work of purifying. Continues in Acts chapter 5 with, with the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in the church itself. Some people think Acts is only about power. No, Acts is also about holiness. There is that purging work in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira who basically drop dead. God judges their sin immediately and radically. This purging continues in Acts chapter 6 as as now this growing church has to deal with the reality of kind of managing the needs of the congregation. There are some Greek Jews, there are some Hebrew Jews who basically, Greek Jews, Greek widows and Hebrew widows who basically don't have enough to eat. And so now the church are having to manage this. The apostles say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to appoint some well-respected people just to manage this conflict. Seven guys are chosen. Some people say this is the start of the diaconate, the diakonos, where the deacons come from. In truth, this is just the start of a ministry team that had a specific function. Work out this problem. Let us, the apostles say, focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Philip is one of them. Stephen is one of them. These two men rise up from amongst that group of, uh, that group of servants to almost apostle-like status. And so in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's on the scene. Stephen does a, a great ministry, but results in him being the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 8, now it's Philip's turn. Philip, through persecution, actually is, uh, enters into Samaria. That's where, if you remember the balloons, the first balloon that popped in week number one was Pentecost, the falling of the Spirit in Jerusalem. The next one was Samaria. How did that happen? Because of this guy, Philip. He leaves waiting on tables, the job is done, and he moves into Samaria. And guess what? The Spirit of God falls, Peter sees, even on the Samaritans. 
Philip moves on from there right to this point. So this is Philip. This is a guy who began his ministry waiting on tables and became an instrumental figure in the movement, in the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem into Samaria and into Judea. So that's the guy, verse 26. Verse 27. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, verse 29, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. Verse 31, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now this is the passage of scripture that he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot, and and then both Philip and the Ethiopian went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Baptism, a public profession of an internal act. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. Caesarea? Caesarea by the sea. In week number one, I called it Caesarea Philippi. It's Caesarea by the sea. What happens in Caesarea by the sea? Eventually, the Spirit of God would fall there too. What we see in the life of Philip is that the gospel often came to others through him as he moved. You see, the gospel always or very often comes to us on the way to someone else. And this is what we see with Philip, that there was a There was a calling that he had, and in the same way, there's a calling that you and I also have. Now, to embrace that calling, I think there are three kind of significant truths that we need to grab hold of, and the first one is this. To pursue our call, to really live into that calling, it actually begins with embracing our moment. Embracing our moment. Now, I don't know what season of life you are in, but for some of you, it may well be a season that is unspectacular, predictable, nothing special. Some of you may even say boring. If that's you, then let me encourage you, embrace the season that you are in. I say that for two reasons. Firstly, because we were called, all of us, to serve God. But secondly, I say it for this reason. Before 
pioneering ministry and performing miracles, Philip waited tables, managed conflict, and endured persecution. Embrace your season. Philip was chosen to serve God, not to wait on tables. Now, some people put a period there. I want to put a comma. I want to say, or to run alongside chariots. Philip wasn't chosen to be a sensation. Philip was chosen to be a servant. You can serve God as well by waiting tables as you can by running alongside chariots. Too many of us, however, fail to take hold of and embrace a season where life is predictable, boring, mundane, and even monotonous. And what is true for Philip is also true for us. God did not choose us and save us to be sensations. He called us to be servants, and we serve where we're placed because all mission is local. It is unfortunate that the history of the church has made a division amongst the laity and the clergy. It has kind of had this idea that there are certain things that are more right, more sensational, more spiritual than other professions. That's not true. Philip was called to serve God. And it made no difference to him whether that was waiting on tables or whether it was running alongside chariots. The Archbishop of Canterbury from years ago, Archbishop II, 1693 to 1768, he once said this, God has three sorts of servants in the world. Some are slaves and serve him from fear. Others are hirelings and serve him for wages. And the last are sons, and they serve him because they love. What's true in Acts, if you look at this, is spectacular moves of God happen through people who do seemingly insignificant things for a simple reason that they love God. We've looked at Acts chapter 3. Peter and John go to the temple. Why did they go to the temple? Well, they didn't have access to the scriptures, right? There were no books. I'm going to get to this in a little while. There were no books that they could access. Access to the word of God came through the scriptures. They, they loved God. The scriptures were read in the temple. They would go to the temple. This insignificant act of going to the temple led them to meet someone, a layman whose life was transformed and never the same. Let me ask you, who did you meet on your way to church? We can think of another guy, Ananias, not the bad Ananias, the good Ananias. He was at home, he's praying, and the Spirit of God came to him and said, I want you to go to a certain house on Straight Street because in there there's a guy called Saul. Ananias nearly, nearly had a heart attack. He said, Saul, what are you talking about, Saul? Saul is the guy that's trying to kill us, and you want me to go there? Ananias, go there. Ananias went there, did a simple thing as praying for someone. Ever prayed for someone? And in that moment, as Ananias prayed for Saul, the scales fell from his eyes, and in that moment, he beheld who Jesus truly was. See, the gospel came to him, asked him to do an insignificant thing, and this insignificant thing resulted in a chain reaction that changed the world. Church, we will never behold 
probably until we get to heaven, the impact of insignificant acts of service. But God did not call us and save us to be sensations. He called us and saved us to be servants. Where he sends us to serve is his bidding, not ours. We simply serve. I would never have imagined all of those years ago as a 14-year-old boy when those same elders laid their hands on me in that small church that didn't have an inside bathroom. I would never have imagined it would have left me here. But you know what? God didn't save me to do anything other than serve. And where I'm called to serve him is his bidding, not mine. Church, embrace your season. And this is what Jesus says when we do. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Maybe you're here today and you say, Craig, you're telling me that God has called me to serve and all I'm doing is working in a factory. All I'm doing is cleaning up after my kids vomit because they've got the flu. Embrace your season. Embrace your season because you will never ever know the power of acts done simply because we follow a God of love. The second truth I see from this passage is that when we recognize that we are saved to serve, we are saved to do God's will in the world, there are times when we can only do that by acknowledging that we need help. We need help. Sometimes we can find ourselves in situations where we never thought we'd be. Maybe God's birthed something in our hearts and we're not seeing the fruit of it. So we embrace the season that we're in. But then second, I think there are also times when we just sense God doing something and we don't quite know what to do with it. In that moment, we actually seek help. Now, I, that's why I love this story. In the story that we've read, what we discover is that the Spirit of God tells Philip to leave where he was, go to a strange road, and on that road he sees a chariot and he starts to basically follow the chariot. Now, this was an Ethiopian official, a high-ranking official who would have been protected. It just so happens that this Ethiopian is reading... What? Isaiah. He's obviously wealthy and a man of means because there weren't printed books back then. There were scrolls. He had a copy of the scroll of Isaiah and he's in the chariot. I mean, can you imagine this? Any of you try to read on a paved, on a paved road? Okay. Any of you try to read over a dusty path? <laughs> he's trying to read the thing. And he's reading Isaiah, and it's just in that moment, God says to him, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to run alongside the chariot. Can you imagine what the guards are going to do? What would people do today if somebody came alongside somebody official? Uh, that, would be a, that would be a pretty freakish, wouldn't it? And it just so happens that he's reading out loud. Philip is running. And he says, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, no, how can I? Have you tried to understand this thing? Philip says, let me help you out a little bit. The chariot stops, 
Philip gets on board. Now think about this. This is a guy of significance, of means. He is probably employed because he knows how to do his job. And yet, this guy of significance, of means, of intellect, is only too willing to acknowledge there are some things that he does not know. I think this is the truth here. Seeing the words on a page doesn't always help us grasp the meaning. Sometimes we need help. If there's one thing that I've really recognized changing since I began ministry to where I'm at right now, is that years ago, I was encouraged to put people on my board and on my lead team who really knew what they were doing. These were the people who knew everything. Because if you wanted to get on in life or in ministry, you needed to surround yourself with people who know. But now the world has changed. If you don't know something, what do you do? You Google it. What does that do to the knowledge-based economy? What does that do to the kind of people that you want to have surrounding you? What I've realized is the best people to have surrounding me are not the ones who claim to know everything. They're the ones who know what they know and are only too willing to acknowledge what they don't. Who do you surround yourself with? Know-it-alls? The world has changed. And the way to get on in the world is actually not to surround yourself with people who know everything, but to actually find out means through which you can get to discover those things that you need to know, but don't. Don't let pride get in the way of you asking for help because sometimes even when you read the Bible, which is the point of these verses, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. My call to ministry came through the book of Ezekiel. I'm sitting in my bed as a teenager. I've had this prayer from the elders on that night and I'm reading Ezekiel, and all of a sudden, to borrow the words from John Wesley, my heart became strangely warmed as I read Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2 basically is God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, who's in Jerusalem, saying, hey, Ezekiel, this is what is going to happen. I'm basically sending you away from Jerusalem, away from your homeland, and I'm sending you to a people not of unfamiliar speech whose language you cannot understand, but a people of familiar speech whose language that you can. It was as if in that moment, God just warmed my heart and I knew that this was God speaking to me. Have you ever had a moment like that where you're reading the scriptures and there is something that you're reading, the words seem to make sense, but it makes no sense at all because there's something going on on the inside that you're trying to wrestle. Am I the only one to have that experience? This is what's going on with this Ethiopian. He's reading this and he's like, wait a minute, there's something with this thing. I've just been in Jerusalem, the, the, you know, the Passover, all of these feasts, there's something with this, but I don't get it. Now, in my own case, a number of years later, 13 years later, 
I have this, I have this verse, and 13 years later, I'm in a small group meeting. Vipka and I are in a small group with three other couples, so there are eight of us. The guys are in one room, the girls are in another room, and we start to pray, and all of a sudden, John just senses God saying, Craig, before you are 40 years of age, God will be sending you to pastor a church in America. Folks, I've never, I've only been to America once at that point in time, and that was for a vacation to California. And in that moment, what I read in my bed as a teenager in Ezekiel chapter 2 started to make sense. I would be sent overseas, but I would be speaking and ministering overseas to a people who spoke the same language. You may not think we speak the same language, but I assure you we do. You see, I needed help. And the help that I needed took 13 years of faithfulness, of perseverance, and of realizing that God would fulfill this thing in his time. But I needed help. And all through my ministry, I've needed help. I remember when my ministry led me to assume my first lead pastoral position and I sat around a table with a board and I never had to sit around a table with a, a board before and I'm thinking, okay, they're here, now what? They prepared me for theology in school. They didn't prepare me to, to lead boards. It just so happened that that next Sunday I was in church and at the end of the service, Vipka and I bumped into a guy by the name of Wayne and his wife Inga. They were serving in NATO, organizing the G7, G8 summits. It was their last Sunday in church and we got in a conversation and it led to us getting together with them in the week before they moved and Wayne told me what he did. He was a professor of business management, helping people and boards understand vision, mission, benchmarks. And I looked at Wayne and said, would you help me because because I have not got a clue what I'm doing. And he looked at me and he said, Craig, I've been in this church for two years. He was a junk professor of business at a, a big school in America, and he basically said, I've gone to the leaders over and over again, saying, hey, I'm here, what can I do to help? And this is my last day, and you come along and ask me. He was frustrated, but in that season of two years, he took me to one side, and he just worked this into me. And it helped me enormously. Why? Why did it happen? It happened because I was willing to look at the guy and say, I can't do this, please, will you help me? And he did. Fast forward to Tampa, I move over to Tampa and I'm recognizing that the world is changing and the organization I was leading was complex. How do I do this? God brings a guy by the name of Art McNeil in. He was a, a consultant and uh, an author, published author, all on change management and business processes. And I looked at him and I said, Art, would you please help me? And, and he was pleased to do so. He just had a heart aneurysm, and as a result of that, he'd lost his wife through cancer, given up his ministry, and uh, he, he then found faith in Jesus Christ, and he took me to one side, and for a long period of time, he just taught me some of the things I needed to know. What's the point? The point is, if God has given you a vision, and God has given you a ministry, I honestly believe that if that vision is from God, you are going to need the help of God's people to make this vision a reality. If you don't need help, then your vision is too small. 
We all need help. And the question here is, are you the type of person that prides yourself on what you know to such a degree that you will not ask for help when you need it? And the second part of this is, who are you gonna call? A friend of mine was, uh, told me one time that he was stuck on an elevator. And the elevator going up in this uh, office building and he went up on the elevator and he, and he kind of stopped between floors. And if you've ever been on an elevator that stops, you know the first reaction for people is, <gasps> And then you kind of hope it's going to keep going again, right? Well, it didn't. And he said in that moment, it was amazing to see what happened. People started shouting, help, help, we're stuck, help. Well, it didn't work because they were between floors. Some of them, realizing it didn't work, actually went up to the doors and started hammering on the door. And he said, and I watched this one guy just moved his way to the back of the elevator, flipped open the little closet cupboard thing, you know, that was there, picked up the telephone. It rang and he said, uh, the lady on the other line said, uh, are you stuck in the elevator? The guy said, yes. And she said, no problem. We'll actually send someone in a few moments. A few moments they were out. My friend said he discovered something there, that all too often when we're in a situation where we need help, many of us will resort to two things. Firstly, we will resort to shouting and screaming and taking the frustration out on the people around us, right? The second thing that some of us will do is we will try and do it in our own strength and use brute force to push our way through. Notice this is not what the Ethiopian does. He doesn't demonstrate the power. He doesn't use the authority that had been given to him as a position. He looks at who's with him. Let me ask you this, who's with you? This is why our small groups communities exist. They exist to offer care, celebration, but also challenge. Who do you call when you need help? Is there anyone standing with you? Or do you stand alone? God has called his church to something far greater than we can ever accomplish on our own. But in order to achieve it, we need to stand together. If you find yourself standing alone, don't just embrace the season of life you're in. Acknowledge your need. And then thirdly, as you do that, run your race. Run your race. What's remarkable about this story is actually the way it ends. God orchestrates Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch to meet, and then what happens after the guy has been helped? The guy puts his faith in the Lord Jesus, the first sign of that is baptism, he's baptized, comes up out of the water, and? Philip's gone. He's gone. That's not effective follow-up, God, many of us would say. Surely, he would have, should have given him, you know, the five points. These are the five things you need to do to stand firm in your faith. He's gone. The Ethiopian gets on his chariot and goes back home. Now, history will show that the Ethiopian church is a very strong church dating back many, many, many years ago. And a lot of historians say the reason for the Ethiopian church being so strong is this encounter on the road between Philip and the Ethiopian. What's the point? The point here is that the Ethiopian had a a calling on his life. Philip had a calling on his life 
They were brought together for a season, but each of them went their separate ways to run their own race. And this is the point of the text. The point of the text is this. We weren't saved to ride off into our own sunset, but to run into our own race. We weren't saved to ride off into the sunset. We weren't saved in order to have a a pass, a heavenly pass, a ticket that gets us into eternity when we die. We weren't saved for that. We were saved to run a race that God has called us to. And I love this part of the text. Then Philip ran up. Philip ran up to the chariot. As I read this story, It reminds me of an Old Testament story. You know the story I'm thinking about? Elijah. What does Elijah do with Ahab in a chariot? He runs after it. There's something about running prophets. And guess what? The Bible doesn't just talk about the priesthood of all believers, that because of the death of Jesus, we have an access to God, individual personal access to God that doesn't need to go through a priest because now we are priests. No, what the Bible talks about is not just priesthood of all believers, but the prophethood of all believers. There is something about running prophets. There is something about what God is doing in the world that is causing his people not to walk through life, but to run through it. One guy, Strallen, says this, Philip runs because he's on a sacred service and under divine impulse. It is the inspired running, the sacred running of a prophet. And I want to tell you, if you're following Jesus and you are walking through life, then maybe you've got your pace wrong. We're not called to walk through life. We're called to run our race. Our race. Think about this in Acts. Read this, Paul says this in Acts 20. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. When you read this, you realize that Paul was one hurrying man. He understood his call in life was to run the race. Let's look at someone else in Acts, Acts 13, 25, John the Baptist. John was called a forerunner. You know what the forerunner is? He's someone who runs before. Runs before who? Jesus. And John was completing his work. He said, do you suppose, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one, who, uh, one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Completing his work here is basically pleruhodromos, which basically means completing his course, completing his race. Our calling in life to follow Jesus is called in Acts over and over again, a race. A race. We were saved not to ride off into our own sunset, not to get free access to heaven when we die. We were saved to run. That is why the church in Acts is a running church. Now the question is, why are we running? Some of us are running through life like headless chickens. You know what we need to do? We need to get a purpose. You run, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, with purpose and with an aim and with an intention. There's no such thing as sanctified headless chickens. We run with purpose. But why do we run? What's the purpose? Well, whenever you think about running and you think about a race, we think about a competition, right? We think about gold, silver, and bronze. That leads us into this whole idea of as we run, we compete. 
The church is a running church, and we make no mistake about it. In a nation that is becoming increasingly secularized, we are competing. We are competing against your beds. We are competing against technology. We are competing against uh, the kind of leisure and recreation pursuits. We are competing against work strategies. We are now competing. But there's one thing we're not competing against is other churches. Oh, pastors can feel tempted to do that. Look at the way your numbers are going up and to the right, down. But over and over again, God has reminded me there is only one church in this world, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. I compete against a lot, but I will not, and we will never compete against God's church because there's only one. We work together, which is why our network exists. We've relaunched ourselves over the last few years as a multi-site church with the aim and the intention of helping the church down the street, taking what God has blessed us with through all of your generosity and seeing how we can help other churches. We are called to work together with, not to compete against. So we run, and we are in a race, but this race isn't a competition. The race that we're in is a race against time. It's a race against time. See, today, 151,000 people will die. The vast majority of them will die in poverty, in squalor. A number of them will die through injustice, and many of them will die without having heard of the good news of Jesus Christ, which does not simply offer them an opportunity to meet God when they die, but actually changes their life while they live. That's the gospel. The church runs because the time is late, and the need is great, and everyone needs to hear the gospel. That's why Paul runs. That's why we run. Yes, we compete, but we do not compete against the church. We work with the church because people need to know that God loves them. Why do we run? We run because there's a race against time, but there's also more to it than that. We run because guess what? God is running too. Have a look at this scripture. Psalm 147, 15. When I saw this a number of years ago, this changed the way I thought about ministry. What does it say? It says, he, God, sends his command to the earth and his word, what does it do? Runs swiftly. What does God's word do? Runs swiftly. Why do we run? We run because God's word in the world is running swiftly. We run because... If we don't, we get left behind. If a church doesn't run, it no longer becomes a movement, it becomes a monument. A number of years ago, I went to Europe and just filled inside churches that were once a part of a a cutting edge move of God across Europe, but were now monuments to what God had done. And then I went to other churches that had basically continued to transform themselves because God was continuing to move. And when God moves, the church must run or we get left behind. Why do we run? We run because guess what? God answers prayer. 
Look at this, Paul to Thessalonians. He says this, as for the other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may what? Spread rapidly. That word spread rapidly, that it may run. Paul says, I want to make sure that I am running my race with the right way because I know that God isn't just moving through this world. You know, he's not just kind of walking through it. He's running through it. He's running through it. God is running, and Paul doesn't want to get left behind. Church, here's the truth. Followers of Jesus run because his word runs quickly, and his church has prayed for it to never stop running. We're called followers for a reason. Last week, I did a coffee with Craig and a couple hundred people were there, and I said, guys, I want to uh, just bring you up to speed on some of the things that we're doing. At the end of it, someone comes up, to, up and says, wow, will you guys ever slow down? You're doing so much. Yeah, and the danger is always to keep busy. But this idea that if you have a balanced life, you won't have to run, misunderstands what God is doing in this world. God is moving through this world in a swift way. His word is running. And the church that is obedient to Acts is called a running church. Run, God says, church, run. And that's why Paul says this. I want to be sure that I am not running and had not been running my race in vain. Church, here's the deal. We're all running after something. We're all chasing after something. The question isn't, what are you chasing after? The question really is, who are you chasing after? What are you dreaming of? What are you hoping for? What are you investing your time and your energy in? Church, God is moving through this world, and he wants his church and his people to keep up. The time is late. The needs are great. And everyone needs to hear the gospel. I've asked the band to come back and lead us as we enter into communion. And they're going to sing a song. And that song talks about how important it is for us all to respond to God in our hearts. Worship is not about style. Worship is not about whether we like a certain song or not. Worship is about a heart response. Where we basically say, God, I've encountered you through your word. And what I'm going to do today is I am basically going to bow in my heart before you. And this song starts with the words, running. And as they sing this song and prepare for us to come towards uh, the communion table in a few moments, I want you to listen to the words of of this song and I want you to ask yourself, what are you running after? What are you chasing down? And as you hear these words, I want you to know that in Jesus, God was running after you. Jesus is called the forerunner for a reason. He was running after you. As you listen to the song, just say, God, I also am running after you. Thanks, team.